Please turn with me, if you will, on a copy of the scriptures, first to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 14 through 17. If you're able to put a finger in Psalm 85, that will be our main text this morning. First John 1, 14 to 17, uh, possibly a familiar passage to you. Beloved saints, the grass does wither, the flower does fade, but God's word does not. It abides forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And now turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 85. We're going to just start uh, by reading the first eight verses, uh, and then we'll read the rest later. First verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. This ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask the Lord to be with us and to speak to us through his word. Our God, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide through the dark. Your word is the wisdom and the truth that we follow each day. And it is sweeter than honey. It is sharper than swords. It is healing. It is justice and it is ours to obey. So your word is our understanding of grace, of peace, and of love. These are the reasons why we draw near to it. And so we ask that you would speak to us through it. We ask this in the name of your Son. May he be present by his Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I do hope you're enjoying our uh, time in the Psalms, our little break between series. Uh, preaching through the Psalms is sort of a long-term project at Reformation. Uh, I 
started the Psalms just over nine years ago. It was uh, June of 2011 when we first started looking at the Psalms. And we return to them uh, between series here and there, sort of kind of like an oasis, uh, just a place that we return to from time to time and come back to along our journey. And the Psalms are interesting. They can evoke very different responses in people. And I hear these responses. You have people who would be happy if we never read anything but the Psalms. And you have those people who would prefer that we read anything but the Psalms. And you have people who feel one way one day and the other way the next day. And we have to ask why. What is it about the Psalms that evokes such an emotional response? And I think that's just it. The Psalms are emotional. They are real. They're raw. They are, if I can be blunt, messy. They don't always fit into our neat little boxes. They speak words of comfort, but they reject all platitudes. They tell you where salvation is found, but absolutely refuse to tell you you don't need salvation. And that means that before the Psalms share the good news, they are willing to share the bad news. They're messy. And we don't like messy. We need it, but we don't like it. Psalm 85 is no exception. Ultimately, it is a psalm of hope and confidence, which is another way of saying it addresses discouragement and doubt. Discouragement and doubt are familiar but unwelcome visitors that we all know, at least if we are honest with ourselves. And so it's, a, it's in a message that's important. It's a message that's timely. But that doesn't mean it's easy, and, and that's okay. That's good. As we look at Psalm 85 this morning, what we're going to see is that the only remedy for doubt, the only remedy for doubt in your life is to focus on the God of mercy. You will not find a refuge from doubt anywhere else than the God of mercy. And so I'd like to start uh, going a little bit out of order through this psalm. I'm just going to dive into the deep end and look and wrestle with discouragement and doubt. It's something we all feel, and the psalmist is right there with us. You can, see, you can hear his discouragement and doubt in verses uh, uh, 4 through 6. Uh, but then I'd like to turn and see where he finds hope and confidence in the midst of that doubt because that's really what we need to hear. And then finally, before we close at the end, I would like to spend a few minutes uh, looking at how we're called to respond to God's salvation. So that's our plan uh, this morning as we spend some time with the psalmist in Psalm 85. Now, have you ever felt when in life, you, as soon as you take one step forward, you end up taking two back? Uh, that there's a sin that used to plague you and you feel like it's behind you. You think it's behind you only to have it rear its ugly head once more. Or, or you feel like you've been making progress only to have someone tell you you haven't changed at all. Or you're, you're angry with, with one person but you take it out on another. Or worse, you're, you're really just angry with yourself and you take it out 
on somebody else, some unsuspecting soul. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to break free of your sin and you feel defeated, you feel naked, you feel ashamed, you just feel discouraged. And that, that's a feeling the psalmist understands. He identifies with the sins of Israel's past. He, he immediately invokes their sins in verse 2 and he knows that what he and others have done is wrong. He knows that they failed. He knows that he, they have, they've blown it. And he knows that there's, there's no excuse. There's no way to make it sound okay. And so he, he confesses in verse 8 that all they've done is, is folly. Because there's never a good reason for sin. It's always foolish. And yet that's exactly where he is. Caught up in his foolish sin. And that's why he's discouraged. And you know what you're tempted to do when this happens. Like Adam and Eve, you, you, you look for a way to cover your shame. You put on an exterior of everything's fine. But inside, you're, you're really asking, what's wrong with me? You're convinced that if everyone really knew what you're like, no one would want anything to do with you. We deal with our discouragement in so many uh, unhealthy ways. We try to hide our shame. We, we blame others. Or we simply surround ourselves with, with others who don't challenge us, who are worse or just as bad so that we feel like we're normal. And we do this because we know where discouragement can lead. It leads to doubt. When you look at your sin, when, when you think you've come so far only to find out that you haven't, when, when, you, when you return to your sin over and over, when you, when you feel helpless in that battle against your sin, you start to wonder if God really loves you, if he can love you if there's any hope. You start to wonder if you even really belong to God, if, if you're really a Christian at all or you're just fooling yourself, you, you doubt whether or not you are truly a child of God. And that seed, that, that doubt, if left unaddressed, can wreak havoc in your heart, in your life. You start to wonder why even try. You wonder if there is any hope. And you can hear that in verses 5 and 6. Will you be angry forever? Will you never revive us? Is this it? Is this all there is? Doubt tells you that maybe you should just give up. Give in and call it quits. Your doubt will latch on to how hard it is to do the right thing. How often you fail and it will tell you to let that failure define you. Your own doubt will whisper things into your ear that you would never say to another person. And that's the problem. Doubt is totally consumed with self. Doubt 
looks only for hope in who you are and what you have done, and it will always come up short if that's where it looks for hope. And so if you want to escape doubt, you have to look outside yourself. And that's what most of this psalm does. The first place the psalm looks is to the past. The first three verses uh, rehearse God's rescue of Israel in the past. Uh, the exact episode that it's referring to is, is not clear. Uh, that's okay. It, it could refer to God's rescue of, of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It could talk about his deliverance out of the wilderness into the promised land. It could be both, or it could be something else, because there's, the reality is there are plenty of examples of God restoring and rescuing his people when they repent. The point of the psalm is not when it happened, but that it happened. God's people, at some point, many points, were filled with pride. They turned to their sin, they turned to their, their desires and their lusts, but at some point, having strayed from the narrow path, having indulged their flesh, having hurt each other, having exploited the weak, having married outside the faith, having turned to other gods, at some point, they realized that they had simply got what they wanted, a life without God. And that meant they experienced life without his protection, without his care, and that they were under his judgment. And so they eventually regained their senses and they bowed their knees in repentance. They cried out for forgiveness. They confessed all that they had done and they threw themselves at the mercy of their loving father. And according to verse 2, he covered their sins. He forgave their iniquity. He restored their land, their fortunes, their homes, their livelihoods, and he withdrew his wrath. Verse 3. And it's that pattern, that reality from history that gives the psalmist hope. Because if God can forgive their sins, then maybe he can forgive me. If God can cover their sins, maybe he can cover mine. If God restored others, maybe he can restore me as well. But if we're going to be honest, we need more than hope. Nor we need more than, than possibility. We need assurance. We need confidence. And to find that confidence, the psalmist turns from the past and turns his gaze and his focus upon the character of God. That confidence is expressed in verse 9. Surely his salvation, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. He's confident that God's salvation is for those who turn to him. So what is it that gives him that confidence? Well, let's, let's read the remainder of our passage, verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps 
away. What gives the psalmist confidence is God's character. In verse 10, he says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, Steadfast love and faithfulness are common, probably the most common descriptors of God's character uh, in the Old Testament. And it goes back to Exodus 34. When Moses asked to behold God's glory, I want to see your glory. And God says, yeah, that would kill you. Uh, But I can stick you in the rock and let my glory pass before you. And as I do, I'll proclaim my name. And God does that. He proclaims his name. And this is his name. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin. It is in God that faithfulness and love meet. He's perfectly faithful, never turning aside from the right path, never faltering, never growing tired, never failing. And yet he is infinitely loving. He's kind. He's gentle. He's patient, he's merciful and compassionate, and he forgives sin. Two attributes that we we often think of as so different meet in who God is. But then the psalmist goes on and uses two more words, righteousness and peace, which which he says, kiss in God's perfect character. Again, we don't always connect these two ideas. We can tend to think of of righteousness as rigid, blind, and unyielding. We connect it to justice. And that's not what we think of when we think of peace. In fact, today, many of those who talk about peace, the most uh, have very little regard for the law. But God has long revealed that both are important to him. In fact, in Genesis 14, he reveals his character uh, through a priest named Melchizedek, the king of a town called Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews says, did you notice his name and where he's from? His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. But he's the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, so he's also the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the father of all who trust and fear God. And what God was trying to teach us is that peace and righteousness are not opposed to each other, but belong together. True peace is only possible where there's true righteousness. Peace is always broken by sin. If there is strife, there is sin. If there is a lack of peace, it's because people are sinful. Where there is righteousness, and only righteousness, you will find peace. And peace in the Bible doesn't just refer to to a lack of fighting. It it includes that, but it embodies the whole idea of wholeness. Uh, To wish someone peace is, is to wish so much more than simply a removal of bickering and fighting. To wish someone peace 
in the deepest sense is, is to wish them perfect contentment. No rebellion. No insecurity. No jealousy. To be at peace, true peace, is to be fully and completely human. And that is only possible where sin and all of its effects have been removed. And that means in order for God to grant you true peace, he must deal with your sin. He must deal with your your rebellion. And so it shouldn't surprise us that all of these themes show up in our psalm. Before it got to peace and righteousness, it cries out for forgiveness in verse 2. It understands that the only way to wholeness, the only way to peace, is through repentance and forgiveness. The only place where these things can be found is in the God who embodies them all. The God who is steadfast love and peace and righteousness and faithfulness. He alone can offer forgiveness and peace and restoration because all other roads lead to dead ends. Years after this psalm was written, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, of righteousness and peace, would take on flesh and blood and he would become human. And he would come into this world with a singular mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring righteousness and peace. He came to bring forgiveness and salvation. Matthew says he came to fulfill all righteousness so that those who are sinners might have peace with God. I love how the Gospel of John describes his arrival. We we read it in our, our opening text. Let me read it again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. This is of him he cried out, uh, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now John knew what he was doing. He chose his words carefully. He he used those words full of grace and truth. He actually uses them twice in just the span of a few verses. These were the Greek equivalent for full of steadfast love and faithfulness. John was saying, the God whose glory passed before Moses at that rock has come and taken on flesh and blood. Jesus is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the God of Israel. He is Yahweh. What he's saying is is that this God has come and he is is among us to bring us peace, true peace, peace, to, to make us fully and truly human. He's come to cover our sins. He's he's come to forgive our iniquity. He's come to restore our fortunes. And he's come to turn away his own wrath and hot anger and to put his indignation toward us away. Because it's in Jesus Christ that righteousness and peace kiss. He's the true Melchizedek. (laughs) He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And he speaks peace to his people, as Psalm 85, verse 8 says. 
He and his salvation are near to all who fear him. And what that means is when discouragement comes, when you feel defeated, when you feel naked, when you, when you feel ashamed, and when discouragement gives way to doubt, when you start to wonder if God really loves you, if God can really love you, when you wonder if there's any hope, and when you start to wonder if you really belong to God, when you ask if you really are a Christian, and when you doubt whether or not you are really a child of God, and when you're tempted to look inside for hope and confidence, God tells you instead to look to Jesus. Because he's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. In him, righteousness and peace kiss. He has conquered sin and he has granted forgiveness. Your confidence cannot be in what you've done. It must be in what he has done. It must be rooted in in his perfect love. Romans testifies that love. It says, in this, God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? The Bible never says, well, do you feel lovable? The Bible says, did Jesus die for you? If you look for for confidence and conviction that God's love is real and how you feel, you'll never find it. The Bible says, no, 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 look to the cross. Would he die for you if he didn't love you? That's where you see his love. That's where you know his love. That's where your confidence has to be rooted. His love is the only thing that can answer your doubt. All of this is great news, but it would be a grave mistake to stop here. It's one thing to say that that we need to look outside ourselves to answer our discouragement and doubt. It's quite another thing to say, God doesn't ever want you to ask, what's the right response to his steadfast love and faithfulness? The cry of the psalm is, is not simply, God, please take away my consequences of my rebellion against you and then leave me alone. It also cries out, change me. Look at verse 8. Don't let me return to my folly. I don't want to go back. I don't want to live in my foolish sin. I want to move forward. I want to obey. We, we can't ask God to make us fully human and not expect our lives to be changed. And so what does that look like? Well, I, I think verses 10 and 11 are, are, are particularly helpful. God doesn't just want steadfast love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace to to meet in him. He wants them to meet in you as well. He wants you to be faithful, to walk the right path, to love what is good, to love what is righteous, and to do what is just. But that's not enough. God's not simply interested in obedient robots who are good at rule keeping, but nothing more. Because that would never do for our God. He wants you to be filled with steadfast love and mercy. He wants kindness to flow through your veins. He wants gentleness to define you. To learn to listen more than you speak. He wants compassion to characterize your interactions with others. 
to, to think more about their hurts than your own. That's hard. He wants you to forgive as you've been forgiven, not to demand payment for every wrong done. As we heard in our call to worship, he's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or more pointedly, I maybe will quote the Apostle Paul, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. All of that is to say God's peace has to define us. God doesn't just want you to be obedient. He wants you to be whole, to be complete, to be fully human. And you can't be fully human without love. Those darn Psalms. They're so messy and so raw, so real. They don't always fit into our neat little boxes. But oh, are they good. They don't always tell us what we want to hear, but always find a way to tell us what we need to hear. They always point us back to Jesus and the hope that he alone can give. But the Lord doesn't just do that through his psalms, his scripture. He also does it through the communion meal set before us. Because peace, true peace with God and with others is only possible through Jesus. He came and he kept his own law at every point in our place so that we could be counted as perfectly righteous. More than that, he endured his own hot anger and wrath and justice that we deserved so that we could be counted as righteous. This is what verse 13 means when it says, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a a way. Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death have made a way for us to enter into God's presence and to live at peace with him and with others. And they're not just portrayed in Psalm 85, but they are portrayed visibly in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we proclaim the Lord's death. We announce it, we herald it, we preach it until he comes. Every time we take this this bread and this wine to our, our, our lips, we confess that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Every time we take this bread and this wine to our lips we surrender to the Lord and we acknowledge that our lives are his to do with as he sees fit and every time we eat and drink we pray 
that he would make us more like him, that he would make us truly and fully human. And so let us come and in coming find righteousness and peace. I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And please pray with me. Father, we confess our fears, our discouragements, our doubts. We confess that we look at ourselves and we doubt you. We look for confidence in ourselves when it can only be found in you alone. And so in you we find steadfast love, we find faithfulness. In you we find righteousness and peace, kissing. We need more of you. We, we need to look to you. Help us to find answers to our doubts and who you are. And help us to know your peace. To be more whole, to be truly human, to love what is good, and to remain steadfast, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.